Welcome to this episode of Coffee and Crucial Conversations. Today, we are joined by six educators from across the U.S., along with Dr. Kara Rosenblatt, Associate Professor in Special Education from the University of Texas Permian Basin, to answer the question, what do you do when a parent is resistant to forming a partnership? So we hope you enjoy listening. So before we start talking about crucial conversations, let's talk about coffee. Is coffee better when you make it yourself or when someone else makes it for you? When you make it yourself. Definitely when you make it yourself. Because I know exactly how much cream and sweetener I want. Yeah, completely agree. Yes. Yeah, I think trying to describe the exact color that you want takes more work than just doing it yourself. <laughs> Which has me wondering, because I like making it myself as well. What's the obsession with coffee shops? It's obviously not for the coffee if we really prefer to make it ourselves. Good question. I don't think that everybody... I think it's more of a treat kind of thing. Like when I go, I don't get regular coffee. I get, you know, like a caramel macchiato or something, something that I'm not going to make for myself at home because it's too much work. Right. So the extravagance. I think um, the environment also. Coffee shops are great. Usually a fun little environment to work in or to meet people in people watch people watch yeah see how everyone takes care of their morning routine okay so um one thing i wanted to talk about this morning and we've touched on it before but it's such a big um conversation that i just want to get more in depth with it is about that parent relationship so, you know, we're reading the, um, a dance that matters and talk, learning more about how to navigate the relationship, but what do we do when a parent is extremely resistant to, um, engaging in a, you know, a partnership with us when it comes to the education of their child? Have, have any of you ever experienced that? Have you navigated it? well and gone from a a tough relationship to a a great relationship um jump in well i am the red flag parent niche (laughs) those are the the kiddos that i get um so i have a lot of experience with this both from the this is the mom who always files an ocr complaint which is you know, like almost always summarily dismissed out of hand for being ridiculous. Um, To these are the parents that no one has ever like spoken to (laughs) live, you know, like they played phone tag with or whatever. And I found that oftentimes it's because nobody took the time to listen to the red flag parents before you know, they, they came at it with, 
you're being ridiculous or you don't know what you're talking about or I'm the expert or something like that. Um, that would be the mom who, God, this made me laugh so hard. She asked me if I had a copy of the accommodations acceptance letter for her child because he was going to go take the ACT in the like, I don't know, three weekends ago or something like that. And I said, I don't know, let me look. And I didn't have an electronic copy of it. I said, I have a hard copy. It's up at school. If you need me to, I'll go get it. I'll scan it and I send it to you. And she said, well, let me look and see. And then she texted me back later and said it wasn't in his IEP binder and it wasn't in his accommodations binder and it wasn't in his testing binder. It was in his high school binder. It's like, oh, good gracious woman. Okay. <laughs> system um you know but she has gone from combative we have to have a staffing before school starts you know that kind of thing to um, my co-department chair and i were given a servant leadership award by the pta that she was instrumental in making happen wow so and I say that not to like blow my own horn. It's just that like, <clears throat> when you listen to the parents, you know, it completely changes what's going on. And for those parents that it's difficult to get to engage, if the kid has a cell phone, <laughs> that is magical because you're like, okay, Johnny, I need you to call mom right now. And then like, hi mrs smith how are you doing so you yeah. know i mean it's not always the most straightforward but it's persistence and i've found once you get in touch with those parents who have been hard to reach there's usually a reason they work you know all during the day or you know i had one who worked nights and slept during the day and so we had to you know make a shift make an accommodation but they are always appreciative on the back end of it the front end is sometimes a lot of work but i think one of the worst things we can do when we're trying to establish that partnership is make assumptions about whatever is going on in their life or their head or why they're making the choices that they're making we have no idea you know or that's the place that i try to approach it from now is um, it's not even fair to make a single assumption about why they approach things the way they do, because we have no idea what their background with school relationships, special ed, teachers, disability, advocating for their child. We have no idea what it's been like for them. Anyone else want to jump in and share? I think the key here is listening without judgment um, and listening, like you said um, just a minute ago, time on the front end pays off on the back end. And, you know, the district I work in, our parents are, are very active. They're kind of the other extreme, which I'm grateful for. Um, but it does take a lot of time on the front end. There was a mom that was resistant to the label. And in the beginning, I, I just had to listen. And I realized it wasn't the time to say, you know, this is what it is. I spent a lot of time just listening to her side and what she had gone through with the ear infections. And then she got to the point where she was opening up about her guilt. Did she not 
play with him the right way. And so by March or April, I was able to say, this is not your fault. This is just, I was able to tell her this was your instinct. And then she was able to hear me, but before she could hear me, she had to express everything that she had gone through. And so that developed the trust. And again, it took a lot of time up front. But then in the end, when we went to the art, it was a very successful art. She was open to our recommendations. She was, and again, not to toot my own horn, but she was praising me in front of my administrators. And so what I struggle with is making sure I get that time with the parents in the beginning of the year. <laughs> That's what it, but it pays off because when the parents are working with you, the child is making progress and it's just, it's incredible what happens, you know, when we figure out those dance steps as the book refers to the awkward dances in the beginning. But then, like I'd said in either the blog or the discussion, by the end of the year, I was tired, but I miss these parents, you know, and we got to that casual level and it was just like, it's, you know, even in my ending letter that I had the opportunity to work with some amazing parents and we saw amazing results with the kids as a result. Awesome. I think mine was opposite. And I kind of wrote about this one um, since I was inclusion, I got a kiddo um, mid-year from self-contained and they had already told me, good luck with mom. You know, she does not communicate. So my co-teacher and I, we both tried to reach out to her. We try to like, we'd email, we'd call, we'd do remind. Um, I would uh, staple notes to his backpack and she would not check anything. And so it kind of like, that was hard for us because we, at the time um, we were working with the psychologist because he was transitioning into eating. And so we just needed advice on what snacks to give him, but she would not answer anyone from the school. So that was tough. Um, and it wasn't until he came to school one day with a big bruise on his face and I took him to the nurse and I emailed because I still continue to email and I let her know, you know, he had a bruise and we took it to the nurse and then she emailed within five minutes, this whole explanation. And so, I mean, it was kind of upsetting that all this time we were trying to reach out to her and nothing and then she thought maybe she was in trouble and she finally um sent an email back but even after that she wouldn't respond so i think that was hard for us like i guess that's what i would like advice on too about how to deal with or connect with a parent who's really not responsive and yeah. i was trying to be you know it was kindergarten and so i thought you know this is her first time dealing with school and I'm calling her, the psychologist calls, my co-teacher, the diag, so I'm sure maybe she's overwhelmed. Right. But I mean, I, I would like advice for that too about a parent who just will not take emails or calls. So. Yeah, I think, um, and, and we had touched on this before, but you know, that empathetic, uh, trying to just understand where they might be coming from Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that could be at play, like, um, you know, that parent might just be overwhelmed in life and just trying to possibly survive. And I tend to think that if they're not taking a real active role in their child's education, that they've got other like very dire needs, like just trying to survive, just trying to make, you know, money, keep a roof over their family's head in order to survive or else they naturally, I mean, I would say naturally as a parent, you tend to want to be involved and to care for your child. And so if you're not able to do that, there must be some huge barriers in the way. And so, um, I, I mean, there's probably not a magic fix to it, but the persistence has to be there. Um, you know, 
and it sounds like you guys are, you know, did everything that you could as far as trying different channels of communication. And just because there's not a response back, maybe it doesn't mean that they didn't receive it and value the communication they were getting, but possibly just didn't have the time, the resources or whatever to communicate back. So I think, um, and then as you say, because of the type of response you did get in that one situation, mm -hmm. it seems like there might be a lot, lot going on there. So mm -hmm. at that point, I would say um, probably need to just really start um, trying to build that child up because there might be some like shaky foundation there from a paternal perspective but does anybody else have any suggestions dr rosenblatt you have any suggestions on what to do in that very unresponsive state well i think what um what i remember is that a lot of parents have um the interactions that they do have aren't positive a lot of times and so when you say like uh if it's a i don't know mikey did this today and it was amazing and he did this and then you start to kind of build that not friendship, but like, I'm not like your kid is great. Here's what he's doing. And you start to do it that way, then maybe she will be more responsive. Um, in the future, maybe that parent will be more responsive, but, but I agree. I mean, like if you, I mean, I can imagine that sheer panic that mom felt like, oh my God, he's got a mark on his face. And now, you know what I mean? It probably just prompted her to kind of like frenzy, but it sounds like there's so much going on. And if he is in kindergarten, I don't know. We don't know what happened in preschool or how old he was when he was staffed and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think just like building that positive bridge, like, yeah, he may have some weaknesses, but these are his great strengths. And we're going to do our best to make sure that we identify them and build on them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if the child is coming from a life skills class um, and then kind of being moved into a co-teach, so, and he's in kindergarten, then some of the first interactions in school were the process of diagnosing with a disability or saying eligible for um, services. And um, that's tough, you know, that takes a lot of time for some parents to process and is just a very difficult situation that we shouldn't underestimate the impact that it has on a parent, on a family. And um, so like Dr. Rosenblatt said, you know, sending all the praise messages of this is what they're doing great. This is why we love them being here. You know, this is the progress that the student is making might shift the um, relationship a little bit to where the parent is starting to put, you know, put their guard down and say, okay, so my, this institution doesn't think my child is broken, doesn't think my child is wrong, doesn't think that we don't belong here. This institution actually does value my child. Um, and I had a situation like that at TLA where a parent was, um, initially when they first enrolled their child was pretty eager and a little bit involved. And then as the year went, started kind of pulling back. And then after our like middle of the year, uh, parent teacher conferences really pulled back and wasn't really engaging anymore. 
And the teacher was kind of talking to me about it and really like, I don't understand what happened if I did something wrong. Um, and what had happened was that at the um, middle of the year parent-teacher conference, the progress wasn't, you know, on pace with peers, okay? And this parent had already experienced a situation in which because the child wasn't on progress with peers, they were starting to say, okay, we, we need to get a diagnosis. You know, there's something wrong with him. And so I think she was feeling nervous that that was all going to start happening again. Um, and when we had a, a final end of year meeting, you know, I just told her, listen, there is nothing wrong with him. We love him. He is a great kid. He has these amazing strengths. He is going to, he is going to figure this out. He isn't reading yet, but that's okay. We will keep working on it and he is going to get it. We don't think he's broken. We don't think there's something wrong with him. We think he has different needs and we're just going to keep working on those. And that like literally was a sigh of relief and the tears started flowing and it changed everything. And now you can see, like looking back, she had just started pulling back because she's like, oh, great, here it comes. They're going to tell me again that my kid is wrong and there's, you know, there's something broken and they're not going to be able to work with him or whatever, you know, those fears that parents have. Um, and so that reassurance of saying like, we love him. He's great. He's doing well. He's made progress in all these areas. There's just these parts that we're going to have to keep working on and it's okay. We are willing to do it. Um, it changed everything for her and for the relationship she had with us at school. Um, so I think that speaks volumes to what parents go through when they think somebody thinks there's something wrong with their kid. Thank you. Oh, one thing that the textbook had pointed out that I love how much detail it goes in and some of the discussions that we've had is the impact of that diagnosis and the feelings that the parents go through. And just to how they, you know, I would know it in my head, but to the way the textbook went into such detail about their feelings and their emotions that go into it, I don't think we can underestimate what the parents are going through. And that's something that as educators, we just need to be aware of. The other thing that Dr. Rosenbaum just brought up is, and I always try and do this when talking with parents is to talk about their strengths and how powerful that is. I had this one little girl recently, extreme ADHD, but you know, she's only three and she's precious. And so I would talk to the mom. I said, to live in this child's world, we're going through the line and she's stopping and looking at the flowers. And it's like, and she's so happy. And I would talk about this with the mom where it's driving the mom nuts. And it at times it drives us nuts, but she's stopping and her ADHD is taking her to places that we don't always go to. She's only three, so she's little. And I said, she's looking at the stones and the beautiful designs on the stones and everything. And that the smile on the mom's face during the annual meeting. And so that carries so much weight. Um, <clears throat> the other thing that I always try and tell parents, I said, you know, we have these goals and objectives and that's what we're gonna target. And I can tell you your child will make progress, but I can't tell you exactly when or how, or sometimes we put out these goals and objectives, but they might make progress in other areas that we don't know about. And so I think just hearing that, hey, we're in this with you and they're going to make progress, but I can't guarantee when or how or what we'll need to do. And I've seen their um, body language when I tell that to them. Oh, okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yep. <clears throat> I think to some extent that goes back to what we talked about before about having to have a diagnosis for the public school system to oh, provide yeah. the accommodations. And um, I, I love what you said a minute ago that 
that you just give them. You just, you don't have to have the label. You just go ahead and give the student what they need. And I wish that we were able to do more of that in the public school system as well. Yeah, it does um, set up a dynamic where parents might feel like they're constantly having to fight to get, and that it's always like, please, my child needs this. Like, can we please, can you please give them these things that are going to help them make progress or that are going to set up the situation that'll be ideal for them? Um, and not all systems um, or schools are like that. It can definitely come down to the leaders on the campus as far as um, the special ed leader or the principal, you know, how willing they are to um, accommodate, just make adjustments to their structure in order to make sure all students are successful. And that also has to do with the mindset. You know, what is our real goal here? Are we trying to help everyone be successful or, you know, are we really more focused on um, standardized testing? Are we focused on a college and career readiness? Like every organization has a different focus. And so that focus is going to drive how willing they are to maybe freely adjust things in order for students to be successful. But don't you think too that when you are able to use universal design for learning, then you make learning more accessible for everyone to begin with? 100%. But I think that it's hard in the public school setting. Like it, it is hard to, you can't implement something when you don't have the resources and tools. You can do the best that you can with what you have. Right. right. And the conversation we got into last week about that was, you know, the goal of the public school system, which, you know, is created and really run by the government, um, is not necessarily for everyone to be successful it's really more of a standardized way to get some education, no matter what that level is, get some education to everyone um, in kind of a mass, mass numbers of kids educated quickly. And um, so the focus isn't really on providing accessibility for everyone, which, you know, maybe it could be shifted, I hope. I hope that people are moving in that direction to shift to where we're looking at. How do we make this accessible for more people, not just individuals with different ability levels, but the huge conversation going on right now is diversity. You know, people of different cultures, background, language, ethnicity, um, sexual preference, you know, all of those things play into that learning culture and environment and accessibility for all to me is a, ultimate goal. Well, and one thing, um, Kimberly, I was going to suggest, because we're a high school, I teach at a high school, and so it's a, a kind of a different situation. Um, and we have a graduation committee where uh, special ed and then all the principals and, and uh, people from our central staff get together and we discuss what we call the red flag seniors, like who is in danger of not graduating and what strategies can we use to get in contact with the parent, with the student, to get them on board. And oftentimes we will make use of our student services people um, to do home visits, to go and go to the student's house 
Now, beyond that, that is something that we as a special ed department have done. Um, we're fortunate to have, you know, a few bilingual um, staff members and we figure out a time and we just troop on over to somebody's house. And sometimes when they open the door, you're like, that is why you haven't answered the phone because there are 14 little children running around because you're watching your own kids and your sister's kids and whatever and this is what's going on and you don't want us to know because you're not a licensed daycare we don't care we just want to know if everything is okay um and then sort of following up on what sharon was saying i have a parent who will only answer the phone when i call or when I text or when I email because I am one of the few people in the school system who has ever said anything positive about her boys. And she has four of them and I have met three of them and man, are they tiring <laughs> in a very endearing way, <laughs> but oh yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing that mom responded to you because she thought she was going to be in trouble but all of the other things it sounds like that she's heard have been like requests for her time requests for her input things that are like well this is what's going on with your kid but not necessarily just calling to say johnny did great today just wanted to let you know how much progress susie's made you know that kind of thing when you make those overtures without expecting anything in response, when you're just, you know, it's like making deposits in the contact bank. And then when you need them, they are much more likely to say, oh yeah, that's that teacher who always has my kid's best interest in mind and lets me know what's going on. So yeah, I'll reach out and see what what does she need? What's happening? I Thank love you. the <laughs> making deposits into the good contact bank. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Kimberly, you, you haven't introduced us to this adorable little baby. Who's joining us? This is Alexander and he is all over the place. <laughs> Hi. Hi. How old is he? He's seven months. Oh, so he just learned to crawl and he's very big. Yes. And he awesome. wants to grab all my stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. So um, I understand what you're going through. <laughs> Trying to have uh, Zoom meetings or do videos with a baby in tow. When I first started at UTPB, I had just had my son Cash. And so um, I would have him like strapped on, like wearing him, doing my like video announcements and lectures for students. And I swear, I still have like students who are like, I remember you, you always had the baby in the videos. I just love that. <laughs> like, yeah, we, you know, you can be in school and have kids. It's okay. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> 
I too love awesome. what you were saying about the Megan about the making the deposits um, for positive interaction, and I've heard that before. And one of the things that always irks me is when teachers or any pair, any professional would talk about a kid being lazy. Well, one of the things is human nature is we're going to avoid things that we're not successful at, that we're not good at, and so when children with disabilities have these constant negative experiences with school, they're going to avoid, and it's better for they say that they'd rather be called lazy than stupid or they can't do it. And I think the same holds true with parents. If every phone call they get from us, it's bad news. And so like if we make those deposits of positive interactions with school staff, then they're gonna be more open to interactions with us. That is absolutely right. And, you know, if you think about maybe a, a family or a parent's life being extremely chaotic outside of school, then maybe they're getting a lot of negative interactions as well in a lot of other areas of life and um, are maybe just tapped out on the ability to engage in any more negative or um, difficult conversations or even just requests for their time. Um, so yeah, I love this idea also of just sending positive information with no request for any response um, or any action on their part, but just to kind of fill their bucket as it were. Well, and one of the things that I found is also very successful within that is if we have a big success in class, if there is something positive that happens, I will say, do you want me to call your mom? Do you want me to email your dad? You know, and they're like, yes, please. Okay. And a lot of times I will stop what I am doing right that minute and send an email to their parent, show them that this is what I'm sending and then off it goes. And so then that makes a like a dual deposit. You know, my accounting is a little jank. Um, I was a business major. It's okay. I promise. But you know, like then the kid and the parent are both like, that's that teacher that teaches math that we hate, but also who sent that positive email. So, you know, it's, it's worth pause to stop talking about systems of equations that no one ever cares about anyway, and tell their parent like, yes, they totally nailed it today. From a parent's point of view, that, that's huge. What you're saying is huge. I had a, my youngest is, is a challenging child, was when she was younger, and it was daycare after daycare after daycare. And when I finally contacted Child Find through the school system, I was in tears because I hadn't heard anything positive about her. And it wasn't until I got her into the school system and found a couple of teachers that really were willing to work with her that I started hearing that positive feedback. And we kind of figured out what was going on at that point because I wasn't even willing to hear the daycares anymore. They had gotten so negative. <laughs> I didn't want to hear anymore. Yeah, I, I also had a friend um, recently who came to me and said, you know, why is it always just the bad stuff that they want to tell me about? Isn't there one single good thing that he's done today or in the last week? I mean, he's a great kid. He's such a sweet boy. Why isn't there one single nice thing that they want to tell me about? I'm like, <laughs> I know that's really difficult. And again, with the 
talking more about the systemic issues, you know, if you're working in an environment that's really focused on deficits rather than strengths, you're going to tend to just want to be pointing out the deficits and um, thinking that if you focus solely on the deficits, that's the best way to make progress, whereas actually the research um, shows that you can focus on the strengths to build motivation and kind of accelerate progress in order to then begin to touch on deficits. So a strengths-based approach is a little bit um, faster at helping a student make progress, but the system, the learning environment has to understand that. Uh, and when you are working from a deficit-based perspective, that's when you're going to get all of the, but they didn't do this and they can't do this and they're not making progress here and the this and the that. <laughs> and that really does create huge barriers for that parent relationship. Well, and this is not exactly the same thing, but I had a student who I have had lots of students who had anxiety, but I had a student who was very visual, who had anxiety and what I did with her was I gave her two colored post-it note sets and I let her pick the colors and I said okay whenever you have a negative thought I want you to write it down and put it here you know it's she had a clipboard and I said and then I want you to think of something positive and put it here to balance that out and it doesn't have to be equal you know just a positive thing like I'm here at school today, you know, just to balance it out. And there were days when there were a lot more bad post-it notes than good post-it notes, but it helped her have that visual. And I think about that the same way with parent interaction, that if you were keeping track of the interaction with your parents in those colored post-it notes, what would it look like? Because I have been on both sides of the table. Oh yeah, sometimes it's a lot <laughs> when you're like, and what did she do today that wasn't psycho? <laughs> Tell me anything, you know, like she's also very smart or, you know, he's also very detail oriented when he stops chasing chickens down the street or whatever, you know, so like Karen was saying with the daughter, with uh, the paying attention to the details in the, the stones and things like that. What's a good colored post-it note? So I have this book somewhere and I, I looked to see it was on my shelf, but it talked, my world is ADHD with two of my kids ADHD. And it talks about the positive attributes of being ADHD. And I love that. And one time I had Xerox that for a parent. It was just so refreshing to see that. What do you do though? Because you have all these other pressures as teachers how do you keep the pressure of meeting expectations from your principals, from your teachers, from your co-teachers, from everyone else in the school system to then, I mean, like, how do you not get exhausted? Or when you do get exhausted, what do you do? Because it's a, it's a lot. Like there's, I think you guys are fantastic for what you do. I don't know that I could do it anymore. Honestly. Yeah, I posed that question in the discussion questions a couple of times, just managing, because I love working with the parents. That is one of my favorite things to do. But like you said, it, it's a balancing act. Thank goodness for summers. <laughs> yeah, but well, summer's eight weeks. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, we are very fortunate on our campus. We have a head principal who is a parent of a child with special needs. And so he gets it. Um, we have a great supervising principal over special ed. She listens to us. We have very, I mean, I have a great math team that I work with. They understand that I'm going to get stuff done and whatever. Um, and what I've done with my parents, and it works for me, it doesn't work for everybody, is with a few exceptions, they have my cell number. And they know if they have a question, they can ask me. And what typically happens is when they first get it, they don't use it or they use it a whole lot. And then when they realize that I will answer their questions and, you know, then that tapers off. Um, I had a parent who texted me on Friday in a panic because her daughter was going to be taking the PSAT and they hadn't applied for accommodations and whatever. And she was like, I know it's all my fault and I'm so sorry. I was like, it's okay. It's fine. You know, does it get exhausting? Yes. But what I have found is if I set the boundaries of, I will talk to you up until this time during the day, it's usually like seven. Um, and the weekends, it just depends on what it is. You know, I may or may not answer that. And I, I have trained my co-teachers so that now they know it's like, okay, well, we're doing this and this is what we're going to do for these students. And then this is what we're going to do for these students and that kind of thing. So <laughs> it's, um, you know, like we said, a lot of times it's work on the front end, but it's, sort of training the people you work with. Um, one of the best backhanded compliments my son has ever given me was, he told me one day, he said, you know, and keep in mind, he's 23. Mom, you know, I gotta say that you're kind of manipulative. And I said, okay, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're always trying to make people be better than they are. And the thing is that you're just ridiculously good at it. <laughs> I was like, so I'm a mom and a teacher. That's my job, but thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can call it manipulation, but you know, it's really setting boundaries, sticking to that time management. I don't know. It's all of those things together. And sometimes it just gets blown out of the water. I mean, I'm so glad that co-seated teaching is over because that that killed me. That was more work trying to keep track of special ed students who were not there in person was an exhausting feat. So, yeah, heard that a lot. That that dual role that was expected last year without designating, you know. Um, a difference between the two, like you're literally teaching in two formats was just basically impossible for teachers. I, I'm, I'm listening to a book, an audio book right now called Upstream Thinking by Dan Heath. 
and um, you should all check it out. It's a really good book, but it's all about um, focusing on proactive behaviors and kind of as an organization or whatever, looking ahead and um, solving systemic issues in order to prevent you from having to be extremely reactive. And in schools, we can become extremely reactive where we're just putting out fires all day, every day. And the title of the book comes from the um, quote or story about, you know, the people standing on the riverbank and they just keep pulling kids out of the water, like one after another. And finally, one of them leaves to go upstream and see why are they falling in the water in the first place and fix that issue instead of just pulling kids out of the water. So, um, you know, that's a great visual and helps us think about it. But when you're managing all of these different relationships, to me, the priority is the relationship with the student and their parent first. That is your customer. That is who you're meant to serve. That's your number one responsibility. Kids come first. That's our job. And so if you prioritize that relationship with the parent and the child, then some of those other things kind of fall into place. Like your principal is probably not going to be mad at you if you have amazing relationships and these kids are making excellent progress. That's probably the principal's goal as well. Um, you know, with co-teachers and general ed teachers, generally that relationship can grow if you can put the kids best interest in mind first and then try to share that knowledge and education with your co-teachers and the general ed partner teachers um, so that they can frame their mind in a similar way of let's put these kids needs first let's prioritize that relationship um, and that's kind of an upstream thinking uh you know not reacting to a lot of things but prioritizing what's going to be the most impactful and then letting other things fall in place behind it. I, I agree with that. I, oh, I think we had this conversation, the first meeting we had, where I told you my co-teacher was like, why don't I have training in special education? And then we got into the conversation about teachers have to be ESL, GT certified, but no gen ed teacher has to be um, SPED certified. So I agree. And I think that with the co-teacher, just building that relationship and the bigger picture of the students and all that, I, I agree with, with all of that. Well, um, in my situation with the parents, actually, it is rather than me complaining about their kids, it's even the parents that uh, see the deficit of their children even more than me because they have a different lens they are having um, expectation of general ed students. Why is my child not doing what typical kids are supposed to do? But I go in there with the lens of a special ed teacher and see the modification and uh, everything I put in place. And I always tell my par the parents of my kid that I meet the kids at where they are and give them a lending hand to raise them up higher than they were, and eventually we all thrive. But the limiting factor I do have is uh, the language because over 90% of my uh, parents are Spanish speaking and I do not have a Spanish uh, um, assistance or anything. So I always have to build a relationship between me and some of the school staff. 
uh, to do translation work for me. So I may call and the parents are not there and I have somebody to translate or um, the parents want to talk to me and there's nobody to translate. So that we have to learn to wait. And luckily too, my, the principals and administrators in my school have seen me as the specialist in my role and do seek my opinion and respect it as much as I'm able to. But I work from the premises that safety first and every other thing uh, follows. And I think it's been a very good, uh, the COVID had made situation also kind of brought me together more closer to the parents than before, because every day we started with almost maybe 10% attendance, but ended up with almost 100% attendance. So because the parents and the students were looking forward to being part of that small screen where we are all sharing. Anyway. One strategy you might look into using for that um, language barrier, I found this really helpful, is communicating through text and then just using Google Translate. So translating all of your messages into their language, obviously Spanish, and then letting them you know, text back in Spanish and translating it to your, for yourself. That way you can really have that responsive communication um, through text. So it's not the same as voice, but it does at least allow you to not have a, a person in between you. Yeah, I tried to draw a balance between using it and it uh, and not using it because most of the things we uh, discuss have uh, legal ramifications to oh. it. And I do not want um, a wrong translation that I don't have or I cannot take back because it creates um, a paper trail that I might not be able to take control of. So if I'm sure. not sure of what I'm saying, I do not say it. Great point. That's a great point. Talking points is always really is also really good. Um, it's a free app and it has a ton of different languages. It's not just um, Spanish and it they're updated all the time to try to make it more accurate in its translation. Okay. Talking points. That, talking points. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is something um, that I remember working with a bilingual diagnostician in the translation in an art meeting, she kind of tried to explain, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. The things that we are trying to convey, there's not necessarily accurate words in Spanish. Um, and so you have to be extremely careful. So um, great point. That is true. Oh, sorry. I mean, no, that's good. <laughs> go ahead. Jump in. Yeah, so, go ahead. Sorry. Hi, I'm Steph. I will definitely be here future Mondays. I live on East Coast time, so I, I keep missing the mark, but I'm here. Um, sorry. Um, no but yeah, problem. I teach We're bilingual. glad to have you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I teach in a bilingual program. So I live in like Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and it's a new bilingual program that we've been like planning forever for middle school because we have it at the elementary school. So Actually, the majority of my parents, I'd say like 70% speak Spanish. Um, I'm the Spanish language arts teacher. And especially during the pandemic, because we didn't have a parent liaison at the time. And we also don't have um, 
a special like education service person in Spanish. Some of the other programs actually have that, like they'll have a special education service person just in Spanish, which is like incredible for a lot of our like native speakers. We have a lot of kids straight from El Salvador or Honduras. They come like basically knowing no English. And it's, it's really hard to get them the services they need, kind of like you were saying, when there's not certain translations for things, if the kids and parents don't speak English, and then we have like an English speaking special um, special needs person trying to like help them through kind of like these parent meetings and things like that can be really difficult. Um, we do have phone translation, but that's like always super wonky, especially in these like meeting settings. It's like super awkward because the parent will be there, the provider will be there, and then there's like a phone person kind of trying to translate. It's like pretty awkward. Um, so a lot of the time I will get called in to like do the translation, which I like don't feel super qualified for. Like I always get super anxious that I'm going to say something wrong, kind of um, like you were saying, like you don't want to be liable for like saying the wrong thing. Um, so I, I, I've always found there's like a school in Arlington, like close to DC, and they have a bunch of like Spanish special needs, like assigned people. And that watching how that school works is like incredible because it's like so helpful. Um, and, I, and I sometimes just feel like funds are like misused. Like those would be super high needs in our school. Our school is about like 40% um, Spanish speaking, like as a home language. And we don't have like any services like that. It's normally like teachers that they fill into these random roles to do translation or they call this phone service, which isn't horrible. I'm glad we have it, but it's just like not um, the best, I think best use of funds, especially when we spend so much money on like random textbooks that these kids can't even read and like things like that, where I'm like, how are we dropping like $20,000 on a contract for a new ESL textbook, but we can't get like a service like a service person who speaks Spanish. That's like always so frustrating to me. I don't know if school bureaucracy gets in anyone else's head, but that like baffles me. <laughs> yeah, we've, our last meeting, we talked a lot about school bureaucracy and some of the challenges that it creates, but um, I would recommend starting a conversation about it. I mean, there might already be people talking about it, but um, we can view ourselves as the leaders in schools and the experts in special education and um, services and advocate for things that we think will enhance, um, you know, the systems that we're working in. And I think getting a graduate degree um, not only improves your technical understanding of your craft, but it also provides you with that ability to say, yeah, I'm an expert in this area and I think these things are absolutely necessary or would be best for our students or to serve our families better so maybe just start a conversation and and try to get some momentum with some other people joining you to advocate for those services because I definitely agree that and sometimes leaders in schools don't know what they don't know I mean that's just the reality of it they don't know um that there's already a system out there that's doing this much better and what would the shift need to look like? So um, moving back to talking a little bit about that parent relationship again, one thing I was thinking about that's a strategy that helps me is I try to see parents through my um, teacher lens, 
you know, I, I am extremely patient with children, with students. I always try to look at, you know, strengths and weaknesses and work from a place of strengths and think through what their environment might be like and what barriers they might be trying to overcome. And when I look at parents the same way, like even literally saying, who would this parent have been in my classroom? Like, what would they, what would their personality have looked like as a six-year-old? It helps me be more patient and kind of thoughtful and thinking about, you know, just because we have the label of parent, we are by no means experts. We most of the time have no idea what we're doing. We're just kind of playing it by ear, trial and error. And I think a lot of parents are in that same situation and so if you can kind of view them as a child or kind of have some patience with what they don't know or where we make mistakes, um, it helps a lot in building the relationship. That is such an excellent point to remember. Look at them. What kind of child would they have been? I love that analogy. And one time I was in a meeting with a parent and when they started to talk, they made absolutely no eye contact. And so sometimes, you know, and he's looking down and I was like, oh, he's probably on the spectrum too. And so in one of the discussions, and I can't remember which class it was, it kind of blurs together, but that some of these parents may have the same disability as their child. And so, you know, when you talk about what kind of child that would have been in our class, if we keep that in mind, you know, or sometimes they're ADHD and they can't focus. And those are just good reminders. Not that we want to treat them like children. We still want to ultimately give them the respect that they need, but also in our language and how we interact with them. That's such a great reminder. Yeah, those apples had to fall from some tree. Yeah, exactly. I was working with a parent who, um, had a really hard time organizing their calendar. And so like really missed a lot of meetings, didn't seem to really know what was going on with the school, like when events were happening and things like that. And I kind of had that aha moment of, yeah, this person might be dealing with a little bit of ADHD and kind of missing one of those executive functioning skills of pre-planning and understanding how to use their tools in order to keep their week organized. And so instead of just being frustrated with them all the time, like, why don't you already know how to do this? You're an adult. Instead saying like, hey, you know, make sure you put it on your calendar or when you're with them, like, let me show you a quick trick to make this easier for you and just be in that educator role, you know, as well to try and help enhance their life. Because if it's happening in your relationship with them, it might be happening in their relationship with other people as well, causing added stress. And that's just something that's going to make their life maybe a little bit more complicated. So we could possibly help uh, accommodate that and educate them in those areas as well. It gives me patience when I'm sending out three reminders for an activity or early release. It's like, okay, this is why I'll continue to have patience with sending out the early release times three times. <laughs> so. so we are um, coming up on the end um, at about an hour. So um, any final thoughts or, you know, things that you had really wanted to share um, before we jump off today? One thing, a quick, so we were talking about the accommodations and the universal design, and I just love that topic. In one of my trainings many years ago, it talked about accommodations, how a lot of these accommodations that we give for children with disabilities are great for everybody. And one thing that comes to mind is 
we had automatic faucets installed for people who were in wheelchairs. The touchless faucets that you just go into the restroom and water comes out. But look how important that's been during COVID times. You know, and all those accommodations we were touchless things. And now everybody's needing them, not just the child or the person that's in a wheelchair. And so when we talk about universal design, these accommodations, they're not just good for the person with disabilities, but they're usually good for everybody. the awkward silence. <laughs> Anybody who hasn't said anything want to jump in and share their two cents or five cents, 25 cents? Okay. Um, I enjoy the talk. I cut my speaker off. The kids are in the background. Um, but um, setting the boundaries really stuck with me because it's kind of hard. I've been teaching maybe two years now. And then when I started my program to get started, COVID hit and I mean, immediately shut down and have to learn how to learn how to teach at the same time. It was learning how to teach in a whole different way. That was not what I was thinking that I was going into. So learning how to, to adapt quickly and just um, learning how to set boundaries with parents. Cause I thought that, you know, being a teacher, you need to go all in. And I had parents call me all times, all day, and it was becoming very stressful trying to meet the needs of the parents, the students, and the administrators. So learning to set a boundary was really important to me. So hearing that again and like setting a time limit, that is awesome. I can't wait to um, say, hey, this is the time that I'm going to actually set my boundary. So that was one thing. Um, making Seeing parents' point of view, I think you talked on, and I hopped on, you were saying that um, parents have think you don't know what's going on in their home. So they may need to talk to you at 7 p.m. because they don't get off of work until that time and they may not be able to use their phone while they're at work. So those things like that taken into consideration so I can have a better parent uh, relationship. I think that's the one thing that I was missing. You know, I teach high school, so the kids come in and I, I kind of speak their language because I have teenagers. And I'm able to bond with them quickly, but then I don't have that relationship with the parents to know how to go on, uh, to have that connection with them. So that's something that I'm definitely gonna take away from this conversation. Yeah, what I do in that regard is I have six periods a day as um, on this class schedule. So I add the seventh schedule when I am giving out the schedules to my parents, uh, to the students and the parents, I put conference hours. So they, it's right there at the beginning of the school year without telling anybody there's restriction, I always write uh, conference hours. So with some exceptions, of course, so that put everybody on notice that there are certain times to consult. I, um, the boundaries, are, they are really important. important to remember. Sorry, go ahead. It's important to remember that you know, while you're trying to see it from the parent's perspective, sometimes their perspective is skewed. Um, I had a parent who, you know, one of my coworkers who happened to be her child's English inclusion teacher, which was an area that the child struggled in. Um, she specifically requested that she be part of the meeting and it wasn't 
it was a revision. It wasn't an annual or anything like that. Mom just insisted on having an ARD meeting so that she could talk about how angry she was about nothing. Um, and she was frustrated and she told the two of us that, you know, the problem was that we did not understand what it was like to have a child with special needs. False. <laughs> you know, my coworker has three children all on the autism spectrum. You know, my children have their respective special needs. Um, and, you know, we expect we didn't feel like we needed to justify ourselves and, and share our personal information with them. But, you know, at the same time, it was obvious that that was where her frustration was coming from, that she felt like nobody understood what she was going through. So sometimes it's, there's just no explanation for apparent behavior other than their interpretation of facts and events is skewed. Yeah, so like on that, I came to my current school two years ago and I was calling a parent about art and she immediately goes, I need to record this. And I'm like, okay. She's like, so what, what, are you, what negative things are you gonna say about my child? I'm like, nothing negative. I'm just talking about the art that the is coming up because every conversation the parent had was, what he's doing wrong, what he's doing wrong, what he's doing wrong. And actually this past year, I was case manager for him again to the point where mom's like, mom was pretty much like right around the corner watching him because she knows her child. But that child did not leave the chair for me. Everyone else he would leave the chair for because he had that relationship with me to where the mom was like, can I just like text you and you pop onto whoever's Zoom or that he has. So all my parents have my Google voice number. So I recommend Google voice so they don't have your actual number. And that mom is like, loves me. It's like, I want you to be with him again next year, but don't know if that's gonna happen. But then I came to the problem. I was fully online this past year. And so like I had some in-class support kids for third grade. And they had a lot of internet issues. And then they'll see me in the afternoon. I'm like, hey, so it's like mom or dad there. They say, no, they're at work. I'm like, okay, well, when they get home, see if they're available. Give me a call and I'll help you finish this. And they'll tell their parents. Their parents are like, no, we don't want to bother you. It's late. I'm like, no, I'm telling you, like, do this because I'm just going to be late. So I had that issue, but I know that can't really do anything about a parent not wanting to because of the time. And yeah. I think the virtual learning was a whole different dynamic of trying to form a, a new relationship with parents in which they're actually kind of having to take a huge responsibility in the education. And it was a good opportunity to grow, but also it kind of identified weaknesses. And, um, you know, I think the most success I saw in the students I work with, um, the adult learners that I work with was if they took the time to really form a good relationship with the family, um, the parents, then that virtual learning kind of went a little smoother. If they kind of stood back and tried to approach it the same way you do in schools where your immediate um, interaction is with the student and the parent is a secondary, then it didn't seem to go very well. But 
yeah, sometimes parents are hesitant to impose on our time. And then other times parents <laughs> are not hesitant at all to impose on our time. And so finding the balance and being patient with whatever we get. And again, looking at that parent as an individual and kind of seeing them for who they are and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are, taking time to educate them when we can, uh, laying on the love and the reinforcement, um, reinforcing, you know, good behaviors and, and uh, sharing the highlights of what we think their kids doing amazing at can all set up uh, an opportunity for a great relationship using the resources that we have um, to overcome language barriers, uh, diversity, um, and, and just being patient, you know, being patient, kind, and loving, that can get you a long way in any relationship that you're trying to establish, whether it's with the child you're working with, their parents, um, your colleagues, you know, co-teachers. Um, I would say those are, you know, some skills and approaches and a mindset that will get you a long way. There's my children. All right, so it looks like it's time to wrap up our Coffee and Crucial Conversations. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Coffee and Crucial Conversations brought to you by LK Media, sponsored by the Transformative Leadership Academy. Real educators, real issues, reimagining education. Coffee and Crucial Conversation.